Welcome to the A-Game Podcast with Nick LaMagna, digging into the minds and experiences of some of today's brightest entrepreneurs in real estate and business, along with Hollywood stars, UFC fighters, and your favorite rock bands. People that have figured out how to overcome obstacles, take chances, live boldly, and no matter what they do, they always bring their A-Game. on the A-Game Podcast is Gabe Hamill, Gabriel Hamill. Guy's freaking awesome. He was a diamond push-up champion. He has a $45 million portfolio. A lot of it he amassed starting in 2005, getting seller finance deals because he didn't have any jobs, any money, and he wasn't able to go and get conventional loans back through banks. So he found a way and he found a solution to keep digging through and pulling through. Former background in uh, the military, wrestler, coaching, wrestling, all these different things. And I keep saying like athletes, military, they tend to have a great optimistic mindset. They tend to have drive. They tend to be people that find ways out of tough situations. And he just embodies all that. We were able to get introduced through my good buddy, David Perret from Military to Millionaire uh, at the Bigger Pockets Conference this year. And uh, the guy was just so cool. Hey, here's my number, man. I'll come on your podcast. And I just thought he was a nice guy. And if David Perret vouchers for somebody i'm going to interview them because that guy's word and reference goes a long way with me and i didn't even realize that this guy gabriel was such a powerhouse in the real estate side and had accomplished all those things and just a good guy he doesn't have to be here doesn't have to talk to us and it was just a great conversation so i enjoyed it i was looking forward to talking to him there was a million other things i could have asked him about but seller financing he talks a lot about he goes over terms and price and what people want so for some of the new people listening that literally is like, you don't go to the bank, you go to the owner of the property and the owner of the property says, I will be the bank, you can just make the right payments to me. And then it just becomes a little bit of a negotiation of what's more important to them. Do they want a higher interest rate? Or do they want a higher purchase price? Or do they want a higher down payment? And you find like that nice happy medium between like, maybe I don't put any money down, but maybe I put a, a higher interest rate on there. Maybe I'm making more payments or maybe I need my payments lower so I can cash flow. So I put a little bit more money down or maybe you, we work out something on the interest rate. So later on I can refinance out or whatever it might be. But like you said, there, there's no typical. It, it becomes if, if you and I are talking and I want to sell you a property. What am I comfortable with? What are you comfortable with? What makes sense financially for me? What makes sense financially for you? Is there some underlying factors? So it just comes to a conversation. And that's what he's referring to when he talks about the terms is what are the payments going to look like over what time? What are the interests? Is there a balloon? Any of those types of things. So it's not all just about purchase price. It's not all about just going to banks and getting money. And we do discuss the, the potential volatile nature or risks right now with Airbnb and syndication models where we're on the market. And how seller financing could turn into a really, really good thing right now. So for some of you who maybe are like, I don't have really a lot of money. I don't have a lot of credit. I can't do this. It's the same thing that this guy started out with and now has a $45 million portfolio. So my wrestlers, my military people, everybody looking to get into real estate, let this be an inspiration for you. He also, we talk about markets. He's been able to organically grow through referrals and circles and word of mouth a massive portfolio of single family, multifamily, industrial properties, all kinds of different things all within a couple hours of where he lives. Now, he has branched out a little bit since then, but you can do deals in your own backyard. I don't care where you are in the country. There's somewhere within your sub-markets or your major markets you can find deals and find real estate, and that's what this whole thing comes down to. So very much appreciate this fun, gentlemen. Uh, definitely somebody I think you guys should check out and definitely in a podcast that I think you get a lot of value at. And please, so I can continue to get great guests like Gabriel and David Perret to come on and give you guys information of how they've made millions and millions of dollars over the years 
for free. All I need you to do is please subscribe to the podcast. Go on nicknicknick.com slash links. And on that site, you'll see all the ways that you can subscribe to the A-Game podcast with Nick Lamagna. And you can even watch it on YouTube. So please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave a review and a five-star rating anytime you get a chance to go do so. And definitely on nicknicknick.com slash links, you also have all of the ways to connect with me on social media. I spend a lot of time taking these episodes, try to find some of the best stuff there, cutting it into clips and then putting it out on all the social media channels from Instagram to Twitter to Facebook to LinkedIn. So please, so we still can get guests on that are coming here and sharing their experiences, show them that you appreciate it, show them that you're listening and follow us on Instagram, follow us on Facebook. Just like the post, share the post, put a little fist bump, a little okay sign, 100, a great info or something. So when I release the clips from Gabriel's episode, he knows that you guys appreciate the information he's given and he wants to pass it on and come back and we can keep this party going. So that is the tuition for this podcast that we've bought over 200 episodes of content to you guys now with entrepreneurs and business moguls and UFC fighters and musicians and all kinds of great people. Please just subscribe and react to some of the stuff on social media. I also would love to do deals with everybody. So please, as we're coming now into the end of the year, text me. It's the most direct way to get me if you want to discuss business. All you have to do is text me at 516-540-5733 and just text the word real estate if it's as simple as that. And we could talk about whether you want to buy properties from me, sell properties to me, or you're not even really sure where you want to start, but you want to have a conversation about how maybe we can partner together. Let's do it. Let's get some deals done. 516-540-5733. If you are looking potentially for a free checklist to bring more value to your buyers as a real estate agent, broker, or wholesaler, go to nicknicknick.com slash biggerpockets, and you will get a free checklist there. On nicknicknick.com slash links, you'll also see our affiliates, the sponsor of this program, Naked Warrior CBD from William Brannon, who is a Navy SEAL. You can check him out, put in promo code A-game for 20% off. You will see Riva Global on there if you're looking for virtual assistance. Zachary Babcock, if you would like to start a podcast. And of course, Nationwide Business Capital Group, if you're looking for funding for your deals. So please like, follow, share, subscribe. Please follow Gabriel. Uh, he's coming from GoBundance. All the guys I met through GoBundance have been awesome. Shout out to David Prey. Shout out to moms. It was just my mom's birthday. Happy birthday, mom, for supporting people like me. And just like Gabriel said, his mom's supporting him. So go do some real estate, go do some jujitsu, go enjoy your day. Thank you for listening to the A-Game Podcast. Gabriel Hamill, thank you for coming on. Hope you guys have a great day. All right. My guest today on the A-Game Podcast is a real estate investor since 2005, fighting out of Oregon. He's a state champion wrestler and coach and a veteran of the Army National Guard. This king of seller financing has amassed a multi-million dollar portfolio of hundreds of non-syndicated units over a very relatively short time, including single family, mobile home parks, multifamily, and a whole lot more, all within one relative market. And while he's been doing this, he's also managed to build a network, raise a family, and has knocked out some amazing bucket list experiences. This diamond push-up world record holder has been featured on many amazing podcasts, including the world-famous Bigger Pockets podcast, father, husband, Go Abundance member, inspiration, fitness enthusiast, and the man known as the guy with the best abs in real estate. Welcome to the A-Game Podcast, Gabriel Hamill, dude. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me. Wow, that was quite the intro. So. <laughs> this is the only thing that got me my in with uh, with Brandon and David. They were like, dude, you did a really good intro. I told David to come on so you could do one for him. I'm like, thanks, man. I appreciate that. <laughs> oh, that was awesome. I mean, I was listening to the show. I'm like, I, I want to know this guy. Uh, no, well, man, so for, for people that don't uh, 100% know you can you give like a 30,000 foot view of a little bit of who you are and where you came from 
Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I was the kid that in school, you know, I never really knew why I was in school. Um, and I didn't really know why what they were teaching was relevant to, you know, real life. But I stayed in school for the social aspect. And uh, as you alluded to, you know, I, I wrestled in high school. And so that was a big part of my life. And then that's really what kept me in school. I mean, the, the wrestling room and just the social aspect, that was my classroom. And so um, that's what kept me there. And then it was a couple of years after high school, I had read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And so like, like a lot of people, it's just, it opened my eyes to something different than the status quo of going to college, getting a job, working for someone else forever. Um, and that was really the first book I ever read cover to cover, word for word, where I was, and, and I was like, this makes sense. This is what I want to do. And so uh, years before I bought my, ever bought my first piece of real estate, it was, I was convinced in my mind that yes, I would become financially free. Um, I'd build wealth and I'd do it through, through real estate. So that was about 2002 when I read that book. I, I graduated in 2000. And even before I graduated, I joined the Army National Guard. So I was doing the one week in a month thing. Um, so I read that book. I, I was living in my friend's attic at the time for like $100 a month. And I'm like, I'm going to build, you know, this big real estate empire. And a lot of my friends would just Gabe, you're an idiot. Um, and then I got a call in 2003 and I was deployed to Iraq and Kuwait 0304. But I continued to have that on my mind and I, and I continued to tell everyone that, hey, I'm going to come back. I'm going to buy properties. And um, again, they were like, I, I think you're an idiot. How are you going to do that? Uh, I was like, I have no idea how, but I, I will. And so I uh, just, just started looking in 2005, bought my first house and rented out to the bedroom. Now they call that house hacking. Back then it just made good good financial sense, but that's how I got my first start uh, was 05. And then bought another one in 06, another one in 07, and just kind of scaled from there. That's awesome, man. It, it's very interesting, the uh, the similar paths that you and I are on, because I think very similar timeline, and, and I hear that a lot, but literally Rich Dad, Poor Dad was, my mom made me read it, and that was the book that changed everything for me as far as just something clicking. I do hear that being one of the books, you know, a lot of people obviously think of Grow Rich, but Rich Dad Poor Dad comes up a lot for people go, this was the thing that changed my mindset and shifted me towards wanting to go over being a real estate investor. What was the thing you remember in that book that really clicked for you that made you go, this is for me, this is the thing that's going to make me change? Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. You said Think and Grow Rich too, because that was another one early on that I read, right? Just like how powerful the, the mind is. And that's something that I, grew up believing already like you have to believe in the mind but rich dad poor dad in particular i think it was just it it went against um a lot of the things that were that were taught right like the typical you have you got to go to college you got to get a job and that just wasn't attractive to me like and there was a lot of things taught in fact i didn't think i liked to learn or liked education there wasn't anything that i had read or was trying to get trying to get taught in high school that I actually enjoyed learning so i think for me more than anything, it was the first time I had read something where I was like, this makes sense. It's very different than anything I've ever been taught or told. Um, but it just, it, it just clicked because it, it made sense. I, like, it kind of answered questions that I didn't even know that I had, that I had, you know. Um, and that was a lot of it. It was more of just like, oh, wow, there is another way to, to do life. And you, you actually have control to take that into your own hands and, and, and go pursue what it is that you want to get the results that you want. You know that I, I have this conversation a lot, but in your circles at that time, because I got the same thing. Like I literally just told this story, how read the book, went to a seminar, went back and told everybody I want to be a real estate investor. And they were like, oh, come on, man. Like, and and even even guys that I know, I, I was listening to you on Bigger Pockets and Brandon Turner was talking about how like people are awesome at something. Like what made you awesome at that thing? Go use that and be awesome at something else. And I find that's why my friends that are UFC fighters, when they talk to me about getting into real estate, they do freaking great with it because they already have these habits of knowing how to be great and something that's tough. 
I didn't know anybody in my life at that time that didn't live paycheck to paycheck. So literally, like when your circles are telling you, you can't do that, they really believe that because they don't know anybody who's done that. Did you have people in your life or people you knew within your circles at that time that were financially free or were already investing? No, not at all. Not at all. Um, you know, I think I was fortunate that, you know, I, I had great parents. I, my mom, something like the mantra that always really stuck with me, my mom did always say at a young age, like, hey, you can do anything you put your mind to. And I, and I think a lot of parents say that. Um, I don't even think my mom lived that, right? Like those words but she instilled that in us kids. And so growing up, I did believe like, yeah, I can put any, I could do anything I put my mind to it. So, um, you know, you mentioned jujitsu and, you know, wrestling for me, I, I took investing on the same way I took wrestling on. So I didn't start wrestling until I was in high school. So uh, yes, I won a state championship my, my senior year, but I worked my ass off to get there and, and not just physically, like it was a mental decision. It was a year before it was my junior year. Again, where I was like in my mind, I was like, I will win a state championship. And then I had to put in all the work to get there, right? It wasn't just, oh, believe it. There's also, yes, I believe in law of attraction, but there's also the law of action too. Like you got to take action on those goals. And so uh, for me, I took, I just took investing on the exact same way of like, yes, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm going to do. And I'll figure out how to get there and I'll put in the work to get there. But as far as having anyone in my life that, um, that was doing it, not at all. I knew nobody in real estate. I knew nobody in business. I knew no one with, uh, with money or who had built, who had built wealth. But it was attractive. And as I started speaking those words, as I started telling people, hey, here's what I'm going to do. It was, it was crazy just how many people came into my life that, that were around real estate and, what, and were around business because those were the conversations I was having. And then naturally, those relationships started getting built. That's incredible, man. Shout out to moms because I tell everybody the same thing, man. I would, rather, I would rather somebody start out with no money, no contacts, and have a supportive circle of their family or their spouse or their business partner, then come in with a bunch of money and have that negativity around them. Because uh, I didn't think about it until you said it, but that, that's what I tell everybody. I didn't come from money, but I did come from a supportive family. And sometimes as a kid, you know, you're, you're told that you can do things and you're, you're told that you can't. And I don't think like looking back, parents realize how some of those things that they project onto their kids stick with them their whole life. So that's incredible sure. that she did pump you up and believe in you like that. That's an awesome thing to have, man. Yeah. And I think what's interesting is the other part of that, then after I read the book and I'm like, Hey, here's what I'm going to do. You know, not that I didn't have the support of my parents, but by then I'm a grown ass adult. Right. And then they're saying, <laughs> don't you think this is risky? And I, in my mind, I'm like, a job is risky, right? Like showing up and having to work for someone else. Someone telling me what to do like that, that seems risky and it doesn't seem fulfilling either. Right. And so it's, I would get questioned a lot between, uh, you know, amongst my family and friends, like, don't you think this is risky? How do you know you're going to succeed? And it was like, at, by that point, I didn't, I didn't need them necessarily believe in me. It was like, I believed in me. And I was so uh, convinced in my mind that this, this would be my path that just make that, make that shit happen. <laughs> you know, you, you bring up an interesting point there that I actually wasn't even going to talk about that I, th I think is relative to what you're saying. When you talk about fulfillment versus achievement, I, I think the, the most famous example I, I can think of is Robin Williams. Everybody assumes the guy's a movie star. He makes everybody else laugh, but he's like the sad clown. He goes home after and, you know, he's sad and all those things. And having that fulfillment, when you talk to new investors and they're like, hey, man, I just, I want a calculator. I want a checklist. And then we start to go, well, like, well, why do you really want to do this? And, and what are you going to do? And, and when I ask people like, okay, you do a deal, you make money, then what? Oh, well, buy another deal, make money, buy another deal, make money. Then what? Then what? And they don't get it that at some point, like if it's just about the money, you're going to crash, you're going to burn. Or more importantly, that's why people don't get to that first deal. Because if it's all about the money, when things are hard, you're not going to push hard enough. You just go find another way to make money. 
And I don't think people put enough into their why and understanding and going after like, this is really what I was looking for. And I heard you talk about how even after you were successful, people had to be like, hey, like you have money now, stop dressing in like $10 jeans, like buy, buy an expensive raincoat, enjoy yourself a little yeah. bit and smell the roses. So like, I, I think that that process is important of picking something. So like, what was it that was your why that pushed you to say, I'm going to keep doing this? Like, what was the, the true meaning of freedom? Yep. And then what are some things that you do to make sure that you do make sure you enjoy that process and smell the roses a little bit from time to time? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you nailed it with just like knowing why you're doing it, right? You know, and, and, and you mentioned freedom too. So for me, I did think early on, you know, after reading Rich Dad Poor Dad and some of the other books, you know, I'd go tell the world like I want to be rich. And but I had to do a lot of self-reflection on that too, of asking myself, well, why do I want to be wealthy? What is it that I actually want? Is it is it an ego thing? Is it do I do I want to buy cool shit? What is it that I <laughs> what is it that I actually want? And what I found like, you know, early on was what I actually wanted was freedom. I wanted to own my time. And it really came down to the time freedom aspect of like, I really want to have control of my life. I want, you know, when my kids were little, like I wanted, I want to be there physically and emotionally when, uh, you know, when, when they're home, I, I want to be able to, to travel, I want to be able to do whatever it is that I want to do. And I think, you know, a lot of people, you know, you, you had mentioned when you ask someone like, well, why do you want that financial freedom? What is it after you get to that, to that point, what is it that you want to do? Um, and that's the same thing, same conversation I had with myself and I've had that conversation with others and it rarely actually comes down to the money. It almost always comes down to, Hey, I want to be financially free because, and it's more time with the family, more time to travel, more time to do whatever it is that they want to do. So time freedom to me may look different than time freedom to you or someone else, but at the end of the day, it comes down to the freedom to have more choices doing what it is in life that, that you want to do. And so for me, that is time with my family. It's time to be able to travel. It's time to be able to essentially do what I want with my time. And I can also build wealth and, and buy real estate in a way that I don't have to sacrifice all these other things in my life. And so once I got really, really clear on just those couple things that were important to me, it was really easy to make the decision uh, and really easy to say yes and no to things that don't align with what it is that I actually want in my life. That's another huge thing I hear from all the people that are successful is learning how to say no, which, you know, I'm, I'm a people pleaser. I had a hard time with that for a long time. But now I, I start to see that every time I say yes to somebody because I feel bad, I'm saying no to something that is going to help my family, my like, you know, some, something else that it, it's, it's always give and take. And I think it comes down to not only discipline, like you were talking about with the law of taking action, but the discipline to know what decisions every day are getting you towards or away from your goals. And I think people discount every small decision. I tell them your life where you are right now is a, is a recipe. And that recipe has been made up of every decision you've made until right now. And if you don't like where you are and you don't want to make different decisions and change the ingredients, you're not going to get, but people go, but I want to be a millionaire. Okay. But then you can't do this and that, but I like doing those things. All right, well then keep doing it. You know? So I think the discipline is a huge thing. And obviously you having like rock salad abs, being a world champion wrestler, world champion uh, diamond push-up guy, and obviously a very successful real estate investor, the discipline for the mental, the physical, creating those habits is, is really the biggest thing. And during the pandemic, people were just talking about Tiger King, Tiger King, Tiger King. And I was like, I will never watch Tiger King because what it stands for me is everybody complained that they didn't have enough time to be successful or get in shape or do all those things. And now when they finally did, all they did was binge Netflix. And I was like, I'll never on principle watch that show. What are some things that you have to do to keep yourself disciplined? Because I'm sure you're just a human like everybody else. They think, well, well, you love getting up at 5 a.m. and you love running and not eating cheeseburgers. And that that's not what we're designed as initially. So I'd love to hear how you keep yourself disciplined and accountable. 
Yeah, I think the discipline piece is is big, but I also think like just habits in general, right? Like the the compound effect. It's whether it's whether it's your health and working out, or whether it's you know looking at real estate deals, whatever whatever it might be. It's it's doing it where it becomes a part of your life. Like and and it's not a question. Like I don't question. I, I never question whether I was going to be wealthy or not. I I don't question whether I'm going to be healthy or not. I think it's a decision. I, I truly think that, and, and people have argued this with me and, and that's fine. Like I'm, people can believe what they want. I do believe that happiness and, and being healthy and being wealthy are choices. And then it, to, to get to that point or to live that reality, you have to, you have to do things that actually align with that, right? So a lot of people will say, hey, I wanna be wealthy, but they're not doing the things over time that get them there. Or they say, hey, I'd like to be wealthy, but they're not getting up and going to the gym and they're not eating, eating well, right? And so I think it's, if you want something bad enough and, and, and you take that identity on and that's who that's part of who you are, you're going to do things that align with that. And, and when you, you know, I think when you allow too much doubt in and say, Oh, I can't do that. Or that's hard. Then you're not going to achieve what it is that, that you want. I think discipline's a piece and just the habits over the habits over time, it becomes part of who you are. So I, I think another thing people do with discipline, I, I know I'm guilty of it sometimes too, is, you say you're going to get in shape. You say you're going to start calling sellers. You say you're going to go on a better diet and you do okay for a little bit. And then you have a cheeseburger or some candy or you, you miss a couple of days and then you start to go, well, that's it. I, I failed. And I don't think they realize that we all have, you get off track sometimes and you just get right back on. That doesn't mean that you failed. You, you, now you did it for three days. You messed up. Okay. Now go for five days. You messed up. Now go for seven days. So what do you do? Like, I, I think the point is you can't beat yourself up too bad on the days that you, you get a little bit off track. How do you handle your bad days? Yeah, I, I think for me, it's just, it's just that it's just that consistency, right? Like there's days, there's days I don't feel like working out, and there's days that I do. But that's not, I don't leave it up to like how I feel because it's not, it's not really a feeling, right? So it's like whether I feel like it or not, I'm gonna go. There's no question, right? Like I'm 100, percent I'm committed to 100 percent a life of health, like a, like my whole life, right? And so it's not a matter of. Oh, do I feel like it today? And it's it's the same with it's the same with business. It's the same with my family. Like I want, like I'm all in. And so, you know, it's it's if I leave it up to choice, is there gonna be too many days where I don't feel like working out? There's gonna be too many days where it's like, nah, I don't really want to analyze that deal, right? Uh, now that being said, I don't put anything on my plate, you know, uh, you know, business wise that I that I don't want to take on, and so you know, to that point, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like work. But I think early on, yeah, sometimes you got to do it. Like you mentioned, sometimes, hey, I want to buy my first deal, but they've never looked at a deal or they've never made an offer. Or they've never analyzed a deal. So if you want it that bad, go look at the properties, go build those relationships, go analyze the deals, right? If, if it's important to you to be in shape, like go to the workouts. I mean, I know people that will read like, you know, is this the best workout? Oh, I think this is the best workout. I'm like, they probably all work. Just go get in the gym and do it. Like start with just doing it and then you can adjust. And it's the same with, it's the same with investing. Like you got to do it and then you can adjust. You know, you can read all, you can be the most analytical person. It's the whole uh, analysis of paralysis, but at some point you got to do it. And then as you do it and as you take that on, it becomes easier and easier as you grow. That's hilarious, dude. I never actually put that together because uh, people would be like, well, I haven't done anything because I can't figure out if I want to do Airbnb or multifamily or mobile home parks or flips. But it's like, well, I haven't gone to the gym because I don't know if I want to use the elliptical or the treadmill or just lift weights. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, yes, yeah. one of them. Start with one of them. You, and that's a big thing. Like, like you have to you have to start. Right. Like and, and that may shift. You know, maybe it's the elliptical and you realize you hate it. You got to go run outside. 
you know maybe you start with an airbnb and you hate it then you go into whatever self-storage and at, at some point it doesn't matter you have to pull the trigger and start though um and then i think the other thing too um you know on the discipline side is like i can turn the outside noise off like i just i don't care what people think you know like it doesn't it, it doesn't it doesn't matter right like when i when i told people whether it was i told people i was going to win a state championship and they said hey you're crazy or i'm telling people i'm going to build a multi-million dollar real estate portfolio and they told me i'm crazy i actually you know and maybe it was just like a chip on the shoulder or what i actually was okay with people saying you're crazy or there's no way you can do that it actually gave me more more fuel and you know i still wonder like am i proven it was i proven it to myself and my proven it to others um but i also enjoy the process and i enjoy the game and i enjoy you know taking going from nothing to something um you know, and I think that's a big part of it too. Like it's that strong why, but also like you have to, I think you have to enjoy the process to, to an extent, you know, whether it's training and it's, and it's painful, there is reward at the end or whether it's, you know, coming from nothing and, and building, you know, building something like there, there is a lot, um, a lot to learn and, and, and love liking the process is a big part of it. Like I don't have to keep buying more real estate. I enjoy it. So like, I've been asked like, well, when's enough enough or when do you stop? I mean, I, I stop when it stops becoming fun, but I like what I do and I'm going to keep doing it. If you have been kicking yourself that you didn't start investing in real estate sooner, whether you're beginner, intermediate or advanced, any way you're looking to get it on a residential, commercial, land development, wholesale and fix and flips, whatever it is, let's find a way to get you involved in some projects, get you some properties, whether you want to sell some properties to me, whether you want to buy some properties from me, whether residential, fix and flip, cash flow, multifamily, whatever it is you're looking for, let's figure out a way to get you involved or find a way for us to partner up on some deals. Go to www.nicknicknick.com, go on the consultation tab and figure out how to schedule an appointment to talk about where you fit in if you are not sure, or you can just reach out to me on any of my social media channels. If you go on www.nicknicknick.com slash links, you will see all the different ways to connect with me and figure out how we can start to work together, make it happen. Everybody that invests in real estate always just says they wish they did it sooner. Best time to start is today. I love that, man. You know, the, the side of it now, before we jump into the business part of it, I, I find it a very common theme that a lot of the people that become successful in business across the board, but they come from backgrounds of athletics and law enforcement, and you're coming from a little bit of both. Was there some things you took away from wrestling and or from the military that applied directly into your life and your habits? Yeah, the military part's easy. Like, I, I, the military is like, yeah, I, I realized I don't want someone telling me what to do, right? Like, in the military, <laughs> you, got, you got rank and whatever. Like, I, I was okay at what I did, but like, I, I just knew, you know, I, I wasn't one of those guys that wanted to have someone telling me what to do. Like, you know, tr truthfully, there's a lot of stuff, uh, you know, that goes on in the military that just doesn't make sense. And it's like, you're not supposed to question it. And, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's kind of like school, right? You just, you're supposed to just be, you told, you're, you listen, and you're not supposed to really, really question things. And there's a lot to, a lot of shit to question in the military. Like, why are we doing this? Why does that, you know, like, how does this make sense? Right. Um, so that was a big one. Yes. There's, a, there's other things, you know, like you're, you know, putting up with stuff and you have to deal with stuff and it's, you know, yes. Um, but, but wrestling, as I alluded to earlier, like it, it was the mental aspect. It was the, like, believe it in the mind first and then go put in the work to, to make it happen. Uh, I, I literally took investing on the same way I took wrestling on. Like I started with knowing nothing. I had a vision and then I worked towards that vision. I mean, that's, that, that was the biggest thing. Man, you know, over the years, I, I, I boxed for like 20 years. I've been doing jiu-jitsu for like 16 now, uh, you know, do MMA fights, all those different things. And 
I, I worked hard. I was a powerlifter before. I did like I would run 10 miles a day at times. So I felt like I had a good work ethic on the, the physical side of stuff. And then my buddy Chris Weidman, shout out, made me do one of his wrestling practices. And even just the warm up, I was like, this is how you guys start your workouts. Like, and I'm in shape. I can't even get through it. Like, wrestlers are another level tough mentally, physically. Like, even guys that are like, oh, this guy's skinny. I'm sure I could take him. And then you grab, he grabs you and you're like, wow. It's like, oh, yeah, he's been throwing bodies around every day for, you know, like people don't understand like the mental and physical strength and discipline that wrestling creates in like from a young age, those guys that have been wrestling their whole lives, man, it is absolutely incredible. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, you know, like it is the mental, the mental aspect like of it. And again, like I said before, like that's, that's how I took the, the investing on. It's like, you don't have to know how right away, but you put it, you put in the work and you want it bad enough, you find a way. So I just, I just take on life the same way I took on wrestling. I just, uh, I recently trained with uh, Uriah Faber up in Sacramento, and he's a guy that people don't know is, is a real estate investor, owns multiple businesses, you know, wrestler came from that background, and same thing, like his, his just his warm-up was like insane, but I, I remember talking to some of the guys at his gym, and people were like, oh, Uriah Faber, so successful, world champion, and he's got all these great businesses, and they were like, you have no idea how many businesses you guys don't see that never make it, how many ideas he has that crash and burns, how many times he fails, like, and I think that that's like the part of it that people only want to see that, hey, you're a champion. They don't see the stuff that goes into it. And even like my buddy um, Aljo, when he first started fighting, he had a shirt. And on the back of the shirt, it says, it's what I do when no one's watching. Yeah, and I was yeah. like, those are the things that's going to make him a champion. And he literally just defended his UFC title in Dubai last week. And now he wants to be on TV. But it's like, it's not about the fight. It's about what did you eat leading up to the fight every round when you woke up early, getting up at 6 a.m. to do podcasts before the sun's even up, like, it's the stuff behind the scenes that people don't see behind the success. And I don't think that in an age of social media, they want to see those things. They just want to see the highlights. They just want to see the cool stuff, but they don't want to put in the hard stuff. Yeah. I think oftentimes we're rewarded in, in, you know, public for what we do in, do in private. Right. So it's like, and you know, and I, I don't remember who said that. Like I remember reading that quote and it's like, it's so, it's so true because it's, it's easy for people to say, Hey, this person's so lucky. Right. Or they're so fortunate but I do, and yes, some people grow up having it better than others or more opportunities than others, but I've never met a successful person who has ever let their background or their upbringing be an excuse of why they are, 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 are not where they're at, right? Like they made a decision to be successful. And I've met a lot of very successful people and a lot of them come from very little or a really shitty background or a really shitty family life. And, you know, like, and I was fortunate that I had a good, I had a good family. Now we didn't have a ton. Right. But like that also pushed me to be like, all right, I'm going to, I want to make my own money. I'm going to get a paper out. I'm going to get up, you know, from at four 30 every morning from 12 to 16. Right. It's like, you just, you just figure it out. And it's like, you know, that what I see some of the most successful people I've met, they've never made excuses from where they started to where they're at today, you know? And I think that's an important, an important piece too. Oftentimes people just see the success and it's so easy to see that you know, on, on Instagram and all the social media, someone that's very successful, but they've been doing it for 20 years and they've been working their ass off or building relationships, whatever it might be and, and in any arena, whether it's, whether it's fighting or whether it's uh, investing you know, in real estate, it's like, it takes, it takes time. And those that put in the work and stick with it long enough, they they'll have success. That's amazing, man. I, I really, I, I appreciate that sentiment, especially on the real estate side, because people will listen to this and go, well, I want to have a multi-million dollar portfolio. It's like, well, yeah, but it, 
it didn't start overnight. You started in 2005. So being somebody that started in 2005 with their first property, what is your portfolio looking like approximately today? Yeah, it's it's kind of a mix of stuff. So uh, my portfolio is valued right now probably around 45 million or so. Um, and it's it's a mix of, uh, I still have, I not a lot of single family, but some from my original, uh, kind of my early purchases, multifamily properties, uh, small apartments, some mobile home parks, uh, an RV park, like a true campground, and then some commercial industrial stuff as well. And also some mixed use, like commercial ground floor, residential up top. Um, but a lot of that was, a lot of that was built. I mentioned like 05, I bought my first house. Um, I bought one in 06, 107. So the, for your listeners who've been around and investing that long, like 05 is during the subprime, right? And that's when anyone can get a loan. So when I got my first house, I actually had no, no money and no job. Uh, but the <laughs> bank gave me a hundred percent finance home. And I've, I've never traditionally financed a property ever. Maybe those first three properties you could consider traditionally financed, but it was during the subprime hundred uh, percent financing. And so First house in 05, no money down, rented up to the room. Same with my second in 06, again in 07. But 2008, uh, for those that have been around that long investing, like that's when everything changed. And in 2008, not only did guidelines tighten up, they tightened way up. So it went from anyone getting a loan, even if you had no job or money, which I had no job or money, um, to it was hard for anybody to get a loan. And so I went back to the bank in 08. Now keep in mind, 2008, so 2006, I opened up a small nutrition store. And it never really made money, like definitely not enough to live on. Uh, 2008, I had the three houses. My first son was born and I had to figure out, um, well, how am I going to make money to support, support my family? And so I shut the store down because it wasn't making money. And I, and I took a bunch of odd end jobs and I was literally on Craigslist, help wanted ads. And um, I eventually landed a minimum wage job, 30 hours a week in a high school special education class. And, and I was coaching wrestling at that school for a while. That doesn't make any money. Um, you know, but it's, and that was kind of my real shit moment of like, you know, I need to get serious on, on my goals. Right. And uh, I had the three houses in 2008. I went back to the bank and said, Hey, I want another buyer. Buy, I want to buy another house. And they said, well, guidelines have changed. You actually need a down payment. You need income. Um, you need all these things that I, that I didn't have. And so I started, you know, just kind of going, going back in my mind, like what else can I do? And I, I knew there was the uh, private money, which I knew nobody with money hard money. I, I had met a hard money lender, but I wasn't comfortable asking for money because I hadn't really done a lot at that point. Um, and then I remember reading about seller financing. And so everything I bought 09 to 13 was all no money down seller financing. And, um, and we can go into that if you'd like, but I, I, I do think there's going to be a lot of opportunities with, with seller financing. But again, to this day, I had never traditionally financed a property. And I actually feel fortunate. Like a big turning point for me was going back to the bank and the bank saying, Hey, you don't qualify for a loan. And I'm saying, hey, but I have these three houses. I've made payments every month on time. They're like, yeah, we don't care. You actually need income and a down payment, right? Uh, and so that was a big turning point because I think it's easy for people to get stuck and be like, oh, they said no. The bank said no, or um, this house fell through, or they got bitted up and I didn't buy it. And then they stopped, right? And I think if, if you really want to be financially free and you want real estate to be that path, there's you can't stop just because someone says no, or just because the market shifts. I mean, the market shifts all the time. I mean, interest rates are going to change and prices are going to change and there's going to be up markets and down markets. But if, if you want it bad enough, you do, you do find a way. And for me, finding that way was, uh, you know, going into seller financing and, and financing my properties unconventionally and untraditionally than uh, how typically you would. So I definitely want to dig into that, but you brought up something that I, I would love your opinion on. 
Because I do remember very well, you get the hard money loan to burn the property and then you go to do the refinance out and now you can't do the refinance out because the lending tightened up. And we're in a very interesting time in the market right now where it's, it's very likely that within the next six some months that the lenders are going to start to tighten up. Some of them have already. Where do you think it's going to be at? Because I looked at deals every day and a lot of them weren't great deals, but syndicators were coming in and taking them down and pulling a bunch of money with that three to five year refinance plan that I don't think they're going to have as easy a time, especially I don't think a lot of them accounted for the rate adjustment. And I think there's going to be a lot of what we saw on the single family side happening on the multifamily side. And that's not the kind of thing where you can just wholesale a couple of properties to pay back your lenders, which is maybe not going to be great for them, but could create a great opportunity for us. So there's always a, a double-edged sword there. But what's your opinion right now on like the state of the market with multifamily for people that do need to refinance out in the next six to 12 months? Yeah, I mean, I've been say, I've been saying this for for years. Like, I think for years there's been a little bit of a bubble in um, the multifamily syndication model, um, and and the same same with Airbnbs because I think you know in in 2012 it was the first time I ever went to a paid real estate event, um, and I had met all all these people that were had been you know in the game for a long time, and there's a lot of people I'd met that had lost a lot of money and a lot of people who did fine you know to through 2008. And it just reinforced a lot of like the original rich dad principles of like, you know, invest in assets and make sure they cash flow. And so everyone that I met, I met a whole group of people on this, on this real estate. Uh, it was a real estate investment cruise. Kiyosaki was there and a lot of his advisors. Um, and a lot of the speakers were great, but it was actually the, in the, the people that I met that were in it doing it as well that I learned a lot from. And what I saw is everybody that banked on appreciation lost their shit, right? Like there's a lot of people buying deals and it didn't matter if it was single family, multifamily, syndicators, individuals, that the only exit was the property had to go up in value or rents had to go up. And so my big takeaway from that is I want to learn from those that um, have made mistakes or who have lost money. I want to learn from them and try not to make those same mistakes. And so those that I met who weren't really affected in 2008, they were investing for cash flow. And so Back in 2009 through 13, when I was putting all those no money down seller financing deals together, my only criteria was they had to be cash flow positive. And so to this day, when I analyze a deal, when I, when I look at properties, I don't focus on the appreciation. Now, almost everything I buy does have upside. Everything I buy uh, a, lot, a lot of times has massive upside, but I write it, you know, and I analyze it as how's it performing today? I base the price and the terms on you know, worst case scenario, if nothing else changes and, and rent stay the same and prices stay the same, does this property still work? And it's really easy. To, see, I think it's easy for people to go, oh, this is going to be worth more and I can make a lot of money. But I was never after making money. I was after building wealth. And I understood really early there's a difference between making money and building wealth. Flipping a house, you're making money. Buying an asset and holding it and it cash flows, you're, you're building wealth. So a lot of the properties, now I've built a ton of wealth because I've held properties for a long period of time or we've had cap rate contention or we've, you know, like, uh, you know, I mean, even some of the properties I've bought in the last couple of years have had massive growth because on the commercial side, you can decrease expenses, increase revenue and, you know, the property performs better and it's, and it's worth more. But I've watched over these last several years, a lot of these syndicators going in with such slim margins. There's almost no returns there. And so- yeah, I do think um, a lot of those properties are going to end up back back at the bank. And same thing in uh, the Airbnb space. Not that people aren't killing it in that space because they are, but I've watched a lot of people overpay for properties and there's they, they won't work. They'll be backwards if they'll have to go to a long-term rental, but it works as an Airbnb. And, and I mean, I want everyone to succeed. So I don't want to, you know, 
talk shit about you know those that are syndicating and those that are doing Airbnbs because I know people that are massively successful in that in that arena. Uh, that's just kind of what what I've noticed. And so I think just keeping it simple is does the property cash flow today, and um, does it does it pencil today? Are you happy with the return today? If rents couldn't go up and if prices didn't go up, um, you know I was asked a lot in say 2009, 10, 11, 12. Well, what if the values keep going down? I was like, I don't care. I mean, even today, <laughs> even today, if my portfolio is worth millions less than it is now, big deal. It's a hit to what? My, my ego or my net worth? Like, as long as my tenants are, are there, as long as my tenants stay there or, and they're paying rent, I'm not in a worse position. The, the value really only matters when you, when you have to sell or if you put yourself in a position where you have to refinance. Um, and I just try to put myself in that position. I love that, man. I think you hit that head on. Now, for some of the people that are listening that are like chomping at the bit because they know the seller financing is extremely attractive to a lot of investors, talk a little bit about what that is for people who don't know and then dig a little bit into your model of how you started doing that, what that looks like. Yeah. So those of that haven't really heard or don't know much about seller financing, uh, essentially, rather than going and getting a bank loan, you're asking the seller to be the bank. And so not always, but a lot of times it's men and women that are in their late 60s, 70s, they've owned the asset for a long period of time. Usually, but not always, they have it, they have it paid off. And a lot of that generation self-managed. So really, really good people. And they're just burnt out. They've, they've, self, they've been maintenance person. They've been property manager. Uh, you know, they've done it. They've done it all. And they're, they're just tired. And so instead of going and getting a loan and making a mortgage payment to you know, Wells Fargo or Bank of America or one of the other you know, lenders, you're making your payments directly to the seller. They are the bank. You take title uh, and, and you're making your mortgage payments to them. And there's a lot of reasons why sellers would do that. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the big ones is, you know, sellers don't want to actively go invest, right? So uh, they, they don't even want to do a 1031. It's not because they're, they're at a time in their life where they, they want to relax. They want to hang out. They don't want to actively invest. Um, the other big reason is they don't want to pay a huge capital gain all at once. And so if they were to be cashed out, there'd be a huge capital gain. Um, so those are the two biggest reasons why, you know, sellers will carry financing is they don't want to pay the huge capital gain. They don't want to actively invest. Uh, and then the other one is just a new level of passivity. So, you know, for them, they're getting income and earning interest on a property or on an asset that they've already owned a long period of time. And so they're, they're comfortable with that. They're on the other side of the equation. They get to be the bank instead of paying, you know, instead of paying the bank. The advantage to the buyer, like in my case, I didn't have money. So when I went to the bank, they said, here's what you need to qualify. You need this, this amount down and here's the interest rate. The bank told me what the terms were and then what I had to do to qualify. With seller financing, you as the buyer can negotiate whatever you want with the seller. So whatever you and the seller can agree on, you can be as creative as possible. I've done, I've done direct principal payments, interest only payments, full amortized payments. It's literally as creative as you and the seller can get. You can make happen. Uh, I think the other big part of that and you know, everyone's strategy is different. The, the two biggest questions that I get asked with seller financing are what are typical terms? And then how do you convince or talk a seller into carrying financing? There are no typical terms. Like throw all that out the window because it, it really comes down to what are the seller's needs? What do you need to happen in order to make the deal work? And can you create a scenario where you're giving the seller what they want and still making the deal work for you? So most sellers, it's, it's they're stuck on price, on down payment or interest rate or something completely different. Like there, there's some uh, emotional attachment, um, you know, or, or something that they're trying to get out of the deal separately from the down payment interest rate um, or price. 
But if it's, you know, if whatever their point is, whatever it is that is important to them, can you give them that and still make the deal work for you? Um, you know, so, and then how to talk a seller into caring financing, I never have. I've never, ever talked to a seller into caring financing. Not that you couldn't, because I know people said, hey, if I cash you out here, here's how much you make. If we do a seller financing deal, here's a look at all the interest you earn over the years. I just haven't done that. After I'd done a few deals, I realized that every seller that ever carried financing for me, they were investors themselves. It was never their primary residence. And all I asked them, because I knew nothing at the start, I would just ask the question of, hey, and I say this on every podcast probably, is, hey, what, what kind of terms would you be interested in? That's all I ask. Hey, what kind of terms would you be interested in? And I listen to what they have to say. And just by asking that simple question, sometimes it's you know a one-minute conversation, sometimes it's an hour. And they just tell me what's important to them. They tell me what they want. I just go back home and go, okay, can I give them that aspect of the deal? They, you know, for whatever reason, they're stuck on interest rate or they're stuck on the down payment because they need X amount of money to go do this certain, certain thing. Can I give them what they want? And then is the rest of the deal negotiable? And usually, and usually it is. That's incredible, man. Do you structure that any differently if they own it free and clear versus if they currently have a mortgage on it? Yeah. If they have a mortgage on it, I, you know, it's a little more in depth. There's not, I mean, not too in depth. I mean, structure wise, it's the same, you know, other than uh, a lot of times you're going to do it as a, as a land sale contract or subject to uh, versus a note, a note and trust deed. So, that definitely yeah. makes sense. And so I know your criteria, a bunch of it is with basically, you're just looking for the cash flow as long as it's going to cash flow. So in this market right now, you know, even like a deal, when I was talking, I was thinking about it. I have a, a six unit that I was going to flip to somebody else. It was going to be like a, a little bit of like a wholesale type of thing, but the lenders didn't love it because it was a little bit more of a rural area. And that becomes one of those things where if you hear that the lenders aren't lending there, that could be a great time to come in and be like, Hey, it's still a great deal. It's still cash flows. Maybe you hold the financing for it if we're having trouble getting the bank to do it. So I think, like you said, it's just, it's about listening more than talking. And, and I heard you say something that I don't normally hear. Everybody else is pushing. When you get them on the phone, you got to make the offer. You got to lock the deal down. And you seem to be a little bit more of the opposite of just, let me go think about it. Let me go see what works and I'll come back to you and, and we'll just figure it out. You don't seem to have that urgency or that mindset of like, you got the fish on the hook. You have to like cook it and eat it right now. And it's working for you. So yeah, where does I, that come from? Yeah, I think, I think some of that came from is like, I realized early on that, that, you know, the, the deals I had done, it all came back to relationships, right? Like even today, every deal that I've ever done from my first one to the most recent one, every single deal has come from a conversation or relationship. And so, and I, and I really value that. And it, it just, it just fits, it fits my personality. I'm not the guy that's going to show up at someone's house in a suit with paperwork and say, sign it, you know, like, here's my offer, take it or leave it. I, I want to build a relationship. So when I meet someone, like I, I, I just, I like people. So maybe they will be acquaintance and I'll never see them again. Maybe they become lifelong friends. Maybe we do business together. I don't know. And so I don't want to be, I'm not a high pressure person. Like I, I can get intense, right. When I, when I need to, but in, but in real estate specifically, I want to build that relationship. Right. So almost everyone I've ever bought a deal from and early on, and I'm not saying this is the best way. This is work for me. A lot of those deals I've done early on most, almost all seller finance deal I've done, unless it was a listed property, we agreed. It was word of like, we agreed it was a handshake deal. And then we would negotiate back and forth verbally or back and forth through email. And then we'd get it on paper. I never had someone back. I've never had someone back out of a deal who's agreed to something just because it wasn't on a purchase sales agreement. And we all know on a purchase sales agreement, there's a lot of ways to back out anyway. Now, if it's a listed property, yes, I want to make an offer and get it off and get it off the market, right? 
Um, but if I'm dealing directly with, with the seller, then, then that's not the case. Like I want to nurture that relationship and that's important. And every seller that I've ever bought seller finance, a seller financing deal from, they've had multiple properties. You do a deal with them. They're going to tell you first when they have another deal, um, you know, and going back to the relationship, like I used to hand deliver my mortgage payment to this one uh, particular seller every single month. I'd go into her business and hand deliver a check because I wanted to build that relationship. Who do you think she sold the next property to? To me and the next one to me, right? And then um, in 2014, when I refinanced all those original seller finance deals, she became my first private money lender. Right. So the relationship didn't end. I didn't, I, I never look at it as transactional. Right. And that's the hard thing when, a, when an agent's involved is, and, and you know what you want, but you don't know what the seller wants. It's very transactional. You put something on paper, a seller may look at it and go, that's crazy. But if you can build that relationship with the seller or broker and they, and they know what you're looking for and you know what they, their needs are, then you can create something that really, that really aligns with what they're, what they're looking for. And so, you know, the, the example of the woman that became my first private money lender, I had never borrowed private money and she had never lent private money, but we had six years of trust. We had six years of me making a mortgage payment on time. We had six years of, you know, conversations, you know, off and on. And so when she, when she got that big payoff and she said, what am I going to do with this money? And I said, you could lend it back to me, even though she thought I was joking at first, it became that relationship continued and she became my first private money lender. And she had funded many more deals for me because I looked at it as relational, not as transactional. I love that, man. I couldn't agree more. I, I echo that all the time that it's about the relationships. It's about the people. And, and one of the things that I think um, it's interesting, again, I just had this conversation yesterday, but I heard you talking about submarkets, and I've always, I've always done really well in looking for some of the surrounding or tertiary markets outside major cities. You know, like, hey, Blackstone's beat me out in Atlanta. Oh, you can't do deals in Atlanta. Sure you can. Go 45 minutes outside of Atlanta. You get half the house for twice or twice the house for half the price with half the competition. And what that turned into was I went for one area and then through the relationships and the information that was sent to me, you eventually get steered towards like, okay, well, this is where I can go pick up some deals. And now I'm deal specific that I have the deal now. I did one. I built the team. Now that team's going to help me find another one and another one. And you you organically grow a little bit of a team and a little bit of niche in those markets. And from what I've heard, you're one of the only guys I've talked to in a while that's been able to build a pretty good portfolio in their neck of the woods. Most people have these blinders on that. There's no deals by me. So they go somewhere else. So I'd love to hear that mentality because I think what's the, uh, like Jesus didn't create miracles in his own city type of thing. Like people yeah. always think in their market, it's different. There's no deals. And again, you're the exception to all these things that I always hear. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't necessarily plan to only like invest where I live and I have properties other places too. Like I just, I closed recently on five industrial complexes in, in Indiana, um, you know, and, and I'm also shifting uh, more into commercial and shifting into other other markets. But the majority of my stuff is in Oregon. I mean, I have some stuff in Idaho. I mentioned Indiana, um, but this is where I started building my network, right? And so there was a particular neighborhood. So as I was buying small multifamily, that's the conversation I was having. Hey, I'm buying small multifamily properties in the Whitaker. That's the neighborhood, that, right? And so growing up here and being in this market. You mentioned submarkets. I understood the submarkets, right? So I understood an hour south where I also have uh, many of my mobile home parks. That's a different market, but I understand that that market. And so where I live, Eugene, Oregon as a whole, sure, there's a market, but one area to another could be very different. One area could be very desirable. One area could not be desirable. Rents in one area could be very different than rents, you know, 10, 10 minutes away. And so some of that has happened naturally because it's where I initially built my um like my relationships and had those conversations 
And I felt, I felt very comfortable making quick decisions because I knew the market and more importantly, the sub-market. So like the neighborhood of the Whitaker, it was a very under-rented, very um, kind of a transitioning neighborhood. It's still transitioning a little bit, right? Um, but it went from an area of like, hey, you don't go down there to people wanted to be down there. And so there's a lot of cool old homes that have been converted to multifamily properties back in the day. They're all cut up into you know smaller, smaller units. And so it was an opportunity. So being in this market, really just kind of had my finger on the pulse of, of knowing like, hey, this is in the path, this is in the path of progress. Same thing with the downtown, you know, the, the town over. It went from like, oh, people don't want to be in Springfield to, oh, now they're, they're very business friendly and people want to be in Springfield. And so I think it's important whether it's your own market or another market, you either need to know the market or have people in place that know the market. And I wasn't, you know, I was someone that even though I grew up here, I was still humble enough to ask property managers and realtors and, and get their opinions. At the end of the day, like I still had to make my decision and, um, you know, if I'm buying the property, but I, I wanted to ask questions and learn as much as I, as I could. And it just happened naturally in my market. That's awesome, man. I love that. It's just solution-based. You're, you're open, you find ways and you're looking for opportunities. I think that optimism plays in, into everything in life. You know, if you're looking oh, for, for sure. stuff and you think there's deals out there, you're going to get them. You did mention mobile home parks. What is your, what is your pros and cons on multifamily versus mobile home parks? Yeah, I like, I mean, I like, I have, I have eight parks. Um, you know, I like that space. I, I got into it, you know, I mean, it's, the parks are a whole, it's a whole different beast, right? Like I've never seen two parks exactly the same. Um, but I, you know, when I was looking at ways to, uh, I was actually looking at shifts into multifamily and I felt just like there was not only so much competition, but the returns were getting condensed down to nothing. And I saw a lot of competition. Some of that was you had a lot of, uh, a lot of syndicators, you know, getting into the multifamily space, uh, you know, interest rates were low. So, but just cap rates were being condensed for so low that I'm like, I just don't see how these, these numbers work or it had a big, you know, to add value, there was going to be a big uh, cap, big capital expenses. You know, you had to wait till tenants moved out and then renovate the property. So what I like about the mobile home park space, I felt like there was an opportunity and, and the mobile home park space has also been frothy over the last couple of years. You know, you got guys like Brandon Turner, you know, yeah, yeah. his mouth, not, you know, for years, <laughs> uh, bigger pockets about, you know, mobile home parks. Um, which is fine. So I also saw, you know, prices and, and cap rate contention there as well. Um, but what I like about the mobile home park space is you can create a lot of value without spending a lot of money. And so my first park was really my proof of concept of rents hadn't been increased in four and a half years. Utilities weren't being built back. So my property manager sent out, you know, a, a small rent increase six months later, build back, started building back utilities. And that added 30,000 in the NOI without spending money. And that's when I really went, oh, wow, like, I don't have to go, you know, I don't have to send a team in and spend a ton of money doing all these renovations. That first park was a 43 unit park. The value is based on the NOI. If I can decrease expenses, expenses and increase revenue, I can create a lot of value, increase the cash flow, increase the value of the property without spending a lot of money. And so that's actually what I really like about the mobile home park space is, you know, you can get the expense ratios down to the, the high teens, the low 20s where a lot of times in apartments, that's, you know, 40, 45%. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's not for everybody. I have great property managers and my property managers are, are really what allow me to, to own my time. And, you know, I don't, I don't get stuck in the trenches of the day-to-day -day stuff. They, you know, they get a handle that and I'm looking at big picture stuff. And that's, what's important to me. That's what I'm better at. I love that, man. And, you know, speak, speaking of circles, masterminds, GoBundance, BPCon, networking, all these different things. How important have those things been in your life? And, and what's, your, 
what is your goals in there? Cause like, uh, like we had a BP kind of, and for me again, you know, it's funny cause you think being like a, like a, a podcast guy and all these kind of things that when I would thrive in those environments, but when you go into there, there's so many big players and so many other people having conversations and I'm there by myself. So I always get like anxiety when I'm there and I'm like, Oh, well, like even when I met you, I was shout out to David Perret guys. So freaking cool. Always like, Hey man, come meet this guy. Come do that. Yeah. But like you guys were in the middle of talking. So I was like, well, am I interrupting? And then I get like weird. And so I was like, well, I'll get your information. I'll touch base with you later. Cause I, you know, so there's so many different people going on and it's like, where do you go? Who do you talk to? And I, I've tried to leave there now and just say, I, I can't meet everybody, but if I can get like a handful of like just new people that I can meet and form some good relationships with, that's all I need. And if I can reconnect with some people like the David Perez and the Brandons and the Davids I haven't seen in a while, that's great too. Um, but it took me a while to kind of figure out how I needed to go to my mastermind meetings or to my conferences with a specific purpose and like a relative goal of like, this is what I'm going here for. Instead of figuring I'm going to get every magic secret from every single one of these one and a half hour things in every conversation. So a guy like you, who seems to have like a really good grasp on that, what is your, how have those types of conferences and masterminds helped you? And then what are your goals when you go to them? Yeah. So I, I actually show up with no expectation, right? I, I, I try not to, I try not to have any expectation because I don't, I don't always know there's not always a clear purpose, right? But for me, it's sometimes it's, 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 you know, I'm there and I'm connecting, I'm connecting with, uh, with friends. Sometimes I'm meeting, I'm meeting new people. Um, but for me, the, you know, the, the mastermind portion, which a lot of times events turn into these masterminds, right? Because, you know, there's thousands of people there. I feel like I learn a lot and I actually enjoy it's the hallway conversations or the dinner table conversations when you have four 5, 10, 15 people, rather than sitting in a conference room with you know, 200 people and one person on, on stage. Um, masterminds in particular, they, it's like, like GoBundance has, has been an amazing part of my life. I think a lot of us in the real estate investing world and in our journey, we're kind of by ourselves, like doing our own thing, or maybe some people have a small team. Um, and I was like that. I was just kind of quietly you know, building this real estate portfolio. And I really wasn't around anybody that was doing what I was doing. And the first time I ever went, I mentioned that 2012 event. Uh, the first time I ever went to an event, yes, the speakers were great, but what I realized is it was all the other people there, right? And sometimes it's very tactical information. And even to this day, when I go to, uh, say, a GoBundance, you know, mastermind meetup or some kind of an event, sometimes it's very tactical, like, oh, I need to do this, or I need to implement this in my life or in my business. And other times it's just getting around people that are playing at a big level, not just in business, but in life. Because that inspires me. And so when I get around people that are playing life big, that's when I go like, that's what excites me. So sometimes I leave from a, a mastermind or event with very tactical, like, yes, I need to implement this. And other times it's just like, oh yeah, it's time to step it up. Like, like I can, I can play bigger. And so like that really, that really fires me up. Um, you know, as far as go abundance specifically, you know, getting around people that are authentic and genuine and playing, playing life all out, not just financially, like go abundance in particular. Like I knew I wanted to be in a mastermind, but I also didn't know how impactful that was going to be to have people in my life. I mean, I mean, I can genuinely say the majority of people in my life outside of my family that I want to be around that I choose to be around that I spend my time with are directly or indirectly connected to go abundance in, in some way, or uh, the Maui mastermind with, with Brandon Turner, right? Like in, in some way, directly or indirectly connected uh you know through him and so it's the people i feel very fortunate that people in my life they're people i want to be around they're people that i choose to to be around and that may up level my life whether it's my my relationship with my wife my relationship with 
my kids, my business, my health, it, whatever it is. These are people that you are putting in your life that they're trying to live their best life and they're trying to push you to, to live your best life. And that's those people. That's the kind of people I want to be around. Rising tides, my friend. I, I love that. And I know we're running out of time here, but through GoBundance, I have heard that you talking about leveling up and being around people who are playing bigger, spent like a week or a weekend with uh, Russell Brunson on his, on his island in uh, ne Necker Island, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, me and my wife and a, a couple other couples, uh, yeah, we went to Necker Island with Richard Branson. That's Richard Branson's private island. Um, you know, and, and, and it was amazing, you know, and it's just going back to what I said, it's like, yes, there's things I learned, but a lot of it was like, hey, here's a guy that's 70, 71 years old, that's not only built a bunch of successful businesses, but he's out living life. He's playing. Like we went on an 11 mile, you know, bike ride uphill. This guy's 71. And I'm like, this guy's, this guy's kicking ass. Like, you know, um, he's out there kiteboarding. Like he's, he's not just, you know, and, and he's also looking like, how do I impact the world? Like he wants to impact the world in, in a big way. So here's a guy that loves the game. Yes. He's financially successful, but he's also loving life. You know, he, he, everything that he appears to be is who he seems to be you know, you know, in real life, we, we also got an opportunity to go to uh, another private Island, uh, Brittany Turner, and we're going back there in March, you know, and it's the same thing. It's someone that started from very little, but she started with, you know, wanting, doing a lot of humanitarian work and wanting to impact the world in a big way. And so I left there going, and I don't even, I don't have an answer yet of like, oh my gosh, how do I impact the world in a bigger way? Branson and, and Brittany Turner, they're looking at like, how do I make a huge impact in, in the world? Right. And that's, that's a big question to ask. Like, it's easy to be like, all right, how do I add value to my life? How do I, you know, create a, you know, a, a good life for my family, but to impact the world, that's, that's a big, that's a big mission, right? So here's people that are playing at a high level, um, not just in business, but in life. And so that inspires me. That makes me come back and go, okay, how do I, how do I play life bigger? I love that, man. You know, I, I can't thank you enough. A guy who's so so successful. You have such good energy. Um, David Perea, again, I can't thank him enough for introducing us, but you were so nice. You know, I was just kind of sitting there like in the middle of the circle and you were nice enough to say, hey, man, here's my information. Like, I'd love to talk more. And you're very gracious when I reached out to you. So the world needs more people like you and David Perea. And I feel like finding circles of people that that's what all they are. Everybody I've met that's related in some way to like the bigger pockets dude or go abundance or like even, you know, David Green calling me to meet them after this stuff like people are just really cool and really helpful and i always leave there being reminded of like what a good place the world actually is and how there's good people out there that will make an impact and i feel very lucky to be able to spend an hour talking to you and guys like you on a weekly basis man so i can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing your story and connecting and being so nice from the first time i met you you obviously bring your a game to everything you do in life and this interview has been no different sir anything that you would like to leave the audience with before we let you go no, you know, I just, I just want to say thanks for having me on. I, I, I enjoy doing this. You know, I, I think if, you know, I, I, I love podcasts. I think you just never know, you know, I've listened to a lot of, of podcasts and I've been on a lot of podcasts and you just never know who's going to say something that's going to impact your life, you know? And so if I've said anything that's impacted anyone's life in a positive way, you know, great. There's a lot of people who've been guests on other podcasts that have said something that impacted, you know, my life. And so I feel like it's, it's a way to learn. It's a way to give back. And so I, I appreciate, you know, the opportunity to be on. And I think, you know, for your listeners, the last thing I would say is just like, if, if you want something bad enough, if you, if there's a life that you can imagine, like, believe it, just go, go make that shit happen. I love it, man. So Hamill Investments, social media, talk about all the ways people can connect with you, find you. How can we work with you? Yeah, the, the best way would be through Instagram, just uh, at Gabriel R. Hamill is the best way to find me. You can reach out to me on there. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate it very much, sir. You have a fantastic day. Happy Halloween, man. Thank you so much for coming on the Game Podcast. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate it. Have a great day, man. So I